I'm Francisca. I'm the co-founder and CEO of Avon Eden. Avon Eden uh, focuses on technology and personalizing skincare. This episode is brought to you by WHU, the Otto Beisheim School of Management. WHU is reshaping the way students learn about business, management, finance, and entrepreneurship through its innovative programs and partnerships in Germany and across the globe. To learn more about this globally ranked university, visit whu.edu today. Hey folks, Garrett here. In this first episode of season three of the Most Awesome Founder podcast, we introduce Francisca Leonhardt, entrepreneur, attorney, VHU alum, and founder of Berlin-based AI-driven personalized skincare company, Ave and Ida. Francisca's journey has been a fascinating one. She began her career as a freelance lawyer, joined international law firm Clifford Chance, and then became Rocket Internet's first general counsel, leading them through their IPO. But it was on one trip to Silicon Valley in 2017 that changed Francisca's career path forever, inspiring her to build one of the world's first technology-driven skincare companies, all while raising her young daughter in tow. So for you folks who want to learn more about this inspiring founder's journey, the complexities of bridging the technology and consumer goods divide, and, and the challenges of balancing work, life, and family, this episode is for you. Hope you enjoy it. Coming to you from WHU, on the banks of the Rhine River, in beautiful Fallendar, Germany, this is the best and most awesome founder podcast. A show about entrepreneurs, innovators, advisors, and educators, and the stories that make them who they are today. Dr. Francisca Leonhardt of Evan Edom. Thank you so much for having me in your lovely offices here in Berlin today. I've been looking forward to uh, to get you on this podcast since we met, I guess, a year ago in Berlin in the Entrepreneurship Center uh, annual meeting. Thanks for having me. Thanks for having me. Awesome. Well, as I told you, um, one of the reasons I'm really excited to have you on board is we're kind of making, I guess, a focus of this season's podcasts are around inspiring female entrepreneurs in the VHU ecosystem and in the German ecosystem in general. So um, you are the first uh, of this season to kick it off, so happy to have you. Um, and I think there's so many different things we can talk about, but what I do with all of our guests on the podcast um, is kind of start with a little bit of storytelling. And maybe you can begin by telling us a little bit about where you come from and your kind of journey that brought you from, uh, I guess, brought you to where you are today. Yeah, so um, first of all, I'm really glad we have this uh, kickoff chance to um, show females that it's always worth um, starting your own. Um, I was actually a lawyer, so probably the most likely, unlikely person to to start off my own business, um, completely uh, risk focus. <laughs> so uh, I studied law, um, actually doing my PhD in uh, constitutional law, which I think is one of the most exciting uh, bits of law, and um, started as a private equity lawyer. Um, and it didn't take long for then um, Rocket to contact me and and they got me uh, to change to to being the general counsel of Rocket. 
Um, and when I changed, I, I found a very interesting ecosystem. So um, VC at that point was a, a little of a different animal, I'd say. Um, for me, coming from private equity, very small animal. Um, and uh, I changed, uh, uh, I went back to Berlin. I also, I, I changed ecosystems. Um, and uh, I started as a single lawyer in that um, in that rocket, non-existing rocket legal team. Were you the only, you were the only lawyer, the first one? Yeah, I was the first one. Um, and uh, at that point we were also, I think, only 150 people um, at Rocket. Uh, it was 2012. Um, and yeah, and then I started and, uh, well, we, we quickly grew the team. And um, I took over also compliance um, and then later the uh, supervisory board. And so um, it was a really great ride, um, you know, taking Rocket public in 2014, um, accelerated book build and what, what we did before it's delisting now. So kind of a, um, a, a fun ride. And it showed me that, you know, I, I really like the commercial side and entrepreneurial side of things much more than I, I like the legal side. Um, and so I started um, an MBA at WHO. Uh, to kind of, um, yeah, to kind of fill in some some knowledge gaps. Were um, you at Rocket at the time when yeah, you did that? Yeah, yeah, I, I was. Yeah, um, I also had a, a, a 12, 12 month year old baby, um, so um, we IPO'd Rocket. Um, we, um, I had a baby, and then I started the MBA. Um, so, so that was really a ride. Um, <laughs> yeah, it was it was uh, it was very challenging. Um, and then, um, in the meantime, I, when I left Rocket, I wanted to do something with a complete focus on on operations and entrepreneurship. So, uh, I didn't dare at that time to really start my own. So I, I went over to Kluckner. Um, they were building um, a steel trading platform, B two B. Um, and they're launching their first corporate venture fund. So I started as a managing director of both of their uh, entities. Um, and in parallel, I worked um, for a private equity fund as an advisor. And yeah, and then uh, finally, uh, 2017, I, uh, I dared to, to think of starting my own. I completed the MBA. I kind of felt ready. I think it's such a female and German thing to think you have to be ready to start. And I didn't feel ready before, whatever that means. Now I'm thinking, what the hell was I thinking? Why didn't I just start? But I, I, I never dared. I, I always thought I wasn't ready or good enough or I needed to learn X, Y, Z, you know? Um, yeah, and then 2017, I, I, I finished in, um, in the US because um, the MBA with Ria was a Kellogg MBA. Um, and I decided to stay four more months in the valley with my daughter. And um, I really took time to visit everything I could um, in terms of technology, have a look at everything, um, kind of like take it all in and, uh, and figure out what would be, would be my thing. And um, I was introduced to uh, my co-founder, um, who was a computer science uh, prof, uh, professor, uh, researching at Stanford and um, teaching at Kaust University. And um, yeah, we had a, a heart for technology and um, we kept talking about personalized products. So at that point in time, there was a hair care, nutrition, 
um, gut bacteria, lots of things already kind of en vogue, um, but no skincare. And, you know, I was wondering why that was. And we had a big discussion on why that was, complexity, lots of different angles that you can look from. And we thought we'd start some research on it. And um, we found really interesting data points on um, what uh, could affect skin, um, how many, let's say, layers of skin problems there is. Are they all catered for outside uh, already or not? And after like three, four months of research, we started uh, Avon Edom to mm. personalize products and kind of put more transparency in the industry. So were you inspired to do this? Were you in the US, in yeah. Silicon Valley when that yeah, happened? Was. was that kind of, was that your mission of going there to find inspiration or to? I mean, yeah, I, I at that point I just knew I want to do something on my own and I wasn't sure what it should be or what it could be. Um, and you know, looking at everything you always kind of, yeah, you look for inspiration but you're always very open to maybe even join someone else. I, I wasn't set on doing this on my own, it has to be my thing. I just really wanted to see what's out there, what's fascinating and um, I was only sure that I would like something that involves technology where it hadn't been applied, you know, a field that kind of isn't full of it yet and consumer goods is not very technological yet. Right, right. I'm curious just to take it back to the rocket beginnings a little bit <laughs> yeah. because you know you went you went from private equity law to, to rocket yeah. and then you were kind of in the VC space a little bit but you were surrounded with the rocket model you were surrounded by all these entrepreneurs or, or intrapreneurs depending on how you kind of look at that model was there something in that experience that made you say, hang on, I don't know if I want to be a lawyer, I think I want to be a, a founder instead? What was the, what turned you on to making this big pivot in your career? I mean, first of all, I don't know a lot of lawyers that really love law. <laughs> so, um, and I'm very passionate about my work and um, I think at some point, and probably that was also why um, I worked so long at Rocket and why it worked so well was that I was always focusing on commercial points. So I think in a negotiation it's always great if you create a win-win situation and like f finding this point, finding out what matters for one person and uh, what matters for the other and kind of bringing it together in terms of commercial is really is, is a nice task, right? Um, but uh, I, I think you meet a lot of amazing personalities throughout the rocket time. I mean, I'm still in touch with so many of our old founders uh, and and um, you you kind of see how they build things, how it's growing from this like, you know, tiny shelf company to this amazing kind of living organism. And um, I really admire that. I, I, I think it's very inspirational to see this happening over a hundred times and I mean, it includes failure, um, but yeah, it also includes the beauty of, of, of com creating something completely new.
you're, you've, uh, I have so so many questions that I want to I want to ask about that that experience. But um, no, do please. I mean, you said you, you kind of mentioned um, the idea of like I don't know why I waited. Yeah. Like I didn't know if I was, you know, I I didn't feel like I was ready. Can you? unpack that a little more like what do you think you were missing and maybe what did you find that made you say now's the time um let me compare this maybe with a question a lot of girls ask me about having a baby yeah so a lot of especially younger girls ask me so when is the right time to have a baby so you know i was in probation time at rocket when i was pregnant um, this was kind of absolutely not the time I imagined <laughs> and absolutely not the right time for me. And, you know, it kind of made me realize now, like my daughter is six years now and, you know, and she's perfect and I'm so happy and blessed I got her. And, you know, it makes you realize there's never the right time for something. But when you're younger, you kind of think there's this perfect laid out plan for you. And then, you know, there's this right time to have a baby, the right time for marriage, the right time to start. And it's just never the right time, which also means there's never the wrong time, right? So um, I think, um, and this is the same for founding, like for starting. I mean, I, I, as a lawyer, you're trained to kind of see risks and to assess risks. And the risk of starting something is always super high and the chances of it succeeding are super low. This is, you know, what it what it's made up for. So um, I think when I assessed this in the usual manner of education as a lawyer, it was always like too high of a risk and too much you don't know yet to make it, like to kind of higher the chances of being successful. Um, so, and I think this was just the wrong metrics. You know, I was just... The KPIs I set for myself were just wrong, because you will never know everything, and you will never, there will never be a better time than now, you know, to start. Right. I guess. I, I, it reminds me of that Mike Tyson quote that said, "I think he said everyone has a plan until they get punched in the mouth." <laughs> yeah, it could and, be. and sometimes life punches you in the mouth, and it it takes you takes you on a different journey. And maybe what seems like a punch at first ends up to be a, an incredible blessing. Um, Absolutely. Let's talk about that first punch because I've experienced that punch too. It's like, uh oh, having a baby. <laughs> I wasn't expecting this at this at this time. You know, I don't know too much about the rocket experience, but most of the personalities I know from the rocket ecosystem are men. Um, all of all of the ones I know, actually. Okay, gotcha. <laughs> so there was like uh, you know two two three great females, and and that was it. Wow. So what was the experience like working in an environment that was so male dominated? You're one of the few women, and all of a sudden you are now on your way to becoming <laughs> a, a mother. Did that have a, an impact on your? your day-to-day -day life, on your career, like how did you, how did you manage that? I mean, I, I, I have to say everyone's always, you know, kind of saying these things about how hard it is to work for Ollie or Mark or whatever, and I have to say I was really scared, like I was scared to tell everybody that I was pregnant and I was scared of what this would do with my career and, and you know, to a point where without even talking to them up front, I would just say, okay, you know, um, I'm fine with um, stop stopping to work here. 
And, you know, we, we don't have to go through the hassle of you having a pregnant general counsel and I don't have to go through the hassle of justifying myself. So, you know, I'm just offering you to, to leave. And I really remember Ollie being super irritated, being like, what, what the hell? We're not living in the 1920s anymore. Uh, you're going to take over compliance and you're going to be just fine. Get a nanny, organize yourself, and it's going to be okay. And... I mean, there's a lot of things you can say about him and a lot of things um, probably that, you know, um, are known about him. Um, but to me, that was really um, amazing. And it kind of, you know, took a lot of pressure. Um, uh, at that time, I was, you know, mostly talking to Ali and Mark and they were very kind about it. And I never felt the pressure of being even bullied out or couldn't do my job or... I was always feeling like it didn't matter if I was a woman or if I was a man. Like, and I, I this gave a lot to me, like um, because I was really scared of this ending my career. Kind of like I don't know. You don't know what's coming, right? You don't know how it goes, how this pregnancy goes, how the kid is. You don't know anything. So I was 29, and it, yeah, it was just it was a kind of a crazy experience and I'm really thankful how, how it went. It never stigmatized. Yeah, I mean, so much uncertainty at those yeah. times. And, you know, fortunately you were in an, a very supportive environment. You were yeah. also um, very successful in your career, you know, as a higher level em employee. But you still had that fear, right? That discomfort and that fear. Like, I can't imagine how many women that aren't as blessed as you and you know have to have the career trajectory as you what they face like it's a lot of homemade things you know like at that time I assumed it would be a problem and it wasn't even a problem and and Ollie handled it super well but it was in my head that it will be one you know and this was kind of this moment where it was like oh my god because you don't realize you have so many prejudices in your head like even turning it against yourself so um, I remember calling my ex-boss saying, would you take me back? <laughs> Before, you know, raising this. Um, it's, and he said, yes, by the way. So as I've got an amazing ex-boss. Um, he's now, uh, he's, uh, he's, I think, the, the Germany partner at Latham Watkins. And he's really great. So I had really a lot of support. But I'm, I'm also aware that, you know, this is not the standard yet so it's still a topic it's still a problem um, and it's kind of because women are supposed to perform or be the same way as men in a leadership position or in in any position and I think one thing was that I had to stop expecting it from myself um, which was really hard um, yeah just, I mean, it just speaks to the social message, the societal and cultural messages that are that are out there. That you can be a lawyer, you can be a C level, yeah. you know, you can be incredibly successful, and you're still facing those same fears and insecurities sure. because of a history of that kind of being in place, right? And you know, I think it's also a lot about the wrong messaging going out to younger girls, kind of saying you can do anything and you can do anything at the same time and like 
I get asked a lot of times how you do it and I'm always like I don't do it like it's not I don't do it well like you know you may think or it looks so perfect but it's not perfect like um it's a it's a daily struggle and I mean you know you know best um so it's a daily struggle to have a kid and it's a daily struggle to still have your career and things are sometimes messy you're forgetting things you're not maybe performing always at the peak of 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 what you could and I think a lot of things is like what what you yourself um you know kind of take internally and and just accept and say okay I may not be perfect but I'm still doing a great job I'm still a, a very good mom and you know kind of have your own perfection standards um maybe lowered a little bit <laughs> You know, it's it's one thing to become a parent or even become a single parent um, in an environment that's relatively stable, where you know you're getting yeah. a paycheck every month, right? Yeah. Um, and I, I sometimes get frustrated when people talk about their startups as their baby, <laughs> because um, although there are maybe a few similarities in there, there is such a profound profound difference. But I'm interested, like it. It obviously takes some courage to be able to continue on your career and balance being a, a mom at the same time. But to me, it takes a pretty extraordinary amount of courage and risk-taking to be a single parent and then decide to start a new venture. Um, how did you kind of come to terms with, okay, I'm gonna leave this very certain, relatively stable environment, stable paycheck, and kind of dive into the unknown with these additional responsibilities as a, as a parent along the way. I, I will not lie to you. I think you ask yourself this at least once a day. <laughs> so um, I was very fortunate that I have a super supportive family. Um, my mom really, like, especially during Corona, kind of stepped in. I know it wasn't allowed, but... I had no choice um you know I have a nanny she helps a lot but she's elderly as well so and she's a risk patient so um she wasn't there for most of the time um I wouldn't make it without my family and I think probably I also wouldn't dare um it's you know uh, you need a support system and I think this is something in this discussion um political discussion especially that people are forgetting like it's not normal that you can afford someone who you know is watching your child it's the the support like not everybody has family that lives in the country or even like the city in my case you you know these are not givens so if we talk about female entrepreneurship or 
or in general female careers, like let's take this into consideration that we need to kind of create an ecosystem where it's okay for, you know, both parents to be responsible for their kids, um, for, you know, support that, you know, is not your own organized family or a paid nanny, but where we just have these, um, these possibilities um, for those that choose them because you know it's not not everybody wants this like this is another thing like you don't have to have to want this career you don't have to want um, you know entrepreneurship like that's also okay like you, you choose it I think that's what's important to have the choice and not which choice you make at the end well it's an interesting thing that you said because I think so many people see it, so many women I know see it as a choice, right? I can keep pursuing my career advancement or I can become a parent. And I have two sisters that were both incredibly career oriented, became parents, still maintain their career, but definitely their energies shifted from, um, you know, I think both of my sisters would say I'm a, a mom first and I have, I have my career second, when I think most entrepreneurs I know yeah. identify, you know, they're, they're identified by their career and, yeah. and that thing that they're, they're creating, yeah. It's interesting and I think it's something you still, um, I see in myself, it's like, you know, in your thoughts, you, you still struggle with what am I first? Am I a mom first? Am I, you know, uh, am I a wife first? Am I an entrepreneur first? What are you first? And I think throughout life, kind of, we adjust our priorities, and um, it's it's your choice. This is also something like like it's your body, you know. It's also your choice what you do with your time, um, and you have to love the outcome. And I think uh, don't assume that you know others do it perfect and they have this perfect career and have this and have that. I'm sure everyone has their struggles, so it really is inside of you and your responsibility to kind of say, um, I'm focusing on this now and I'm not justifying it. It's what I want and what I, what I live for, and this can be anything, um, and just make sure that you fo don't forget your own in this, you know, because it's very easy to kind of focus on everything else, um, being a perfect mom, great entrepreneur, great wife, but where are you? So. Um, I think we talked about this before <laughs> before the podcast it's it's every day you should assess your priorities and put them straight so that you are happy. Well that topic of the shifting priorities I think is is interesting and you don't have to be a parent to even face that or a single parent or or a woman I think everybody faces that on an entrepreneurial journey particularly mm -hmm. but I'm very much interested in how a a single mom balances essentially raising two creatures, right? One, their biological child, and the other, this creature that they're trying to create in, in the world, in the marketplace. Do you find that um, you're bouncing from priority back and forth a lot? And how, how do you manage that effectively, if not with your time, but with your, your heart? I'm not. I mean, I'm, I would say I manage it probably pretty badly. Mm -hmm. um, and I think, you know, everyone thinks you have it figured out, but probably you don't, just like everybody else. And so um, 
you know, I could tell you something about my yoga routine or my meditation practice, but it would just be a lie. <laughs> I'm trying. I'm trying to squeeze it in. I'm trying to, you know, kind of make space for these things, for reading a book, for hearing a podcast, for, you know, everything should have a space. But um, I came to accept that probably I can't do everything at the same time. So, you know, I'm always trying my best to kind of create this little... Yeah, spaces for myself um, but I've also recognized that I shouldn't be bothered so much that I'm not doing it that well you know but the thought of not doing it perfect is still there so I think the most important is to speak about it to 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 kind of take the pressure from others that you can't be that perfect like someone else or just don't compare yourself like look at what you do what you're doing great every day and try to do more of it and live it by the day. I think I haven't figured it out. Maybe next podcast, you know? <laughs> <laughs> we'll have to do a follow-up. Yeah. So, you know, I love the adage, it takes a village to raise a child. I think we could probably have a podcast on that alone. Yeah. Um, yeah. Just the, you know, having family and a community and you being from Berlin, having these resources around you. But I guess you also have your, your other family, which are your, your co-founders and your team. Have they had to adapt to having a, a, a single mom kind of as the leader of their organization? And does, does being a mom affect your, your role as a founder in, in any way? Or do you just kind of internalize it yourself and power through? It's, it's hard to say. I mean, you know, I try never to think of it as something that's outstanding. Mm -hmm. Like for me, um, my daughter is my life so it's just naturally like she's there she will come to the office in afternoons she will you know take half an hour and go with her bike somewhere she will be visiting i will be you know taking her for dinner i try to kind of integrate this you know as part of my life and and then also part of everybody else's life so if someone wouldn't like it probably it wouldn't tell me <laughs> but also you know tough luck like this is what it is and she's a priority in my life and she always will be so um, everyone has to live with it I guess <laughs> it's a package deal it's the same as in a relationship you know like if someone wouldn't like your kid well you know too bad bye that's right adios <laughs> you're done I hear you well let's talk a little bit about I think we could talk about this topic for I mean, there, there are, are books to be written about that subject for sure. But let's just talk a little bit about, about your business. Um, can, you tell, can you tell us kind of a little bit what your core value proposition is, where you guys are now, and where you see yourself kind of going in the next year or so? I mean, the, the angle that fascinated me was, um, as I mentioned, um, the whole uh, consumer goods business isn't really infiltrated by technology a lot yet. So, you know, you have the kind of the marketing department and you have the R&D department and the customer will, you know, mostly get something. It takes a lot of long time to get the cycle back from customer feedback to R&D. And um, I think that's a really weird way of, you know, producing product. So you have a product, it's developed, it stands in the shelf for years and years. Customer uses it, gives feedback, feedback comes back to R&D kind of a broken chain to me and kind of very old-fashioned. So when we started, we thought, how is retail going to develop over the next years? And I think you see a very strong um, 
a, a need for personalized products and that products that really fit you that are made for you and this kind of gives you this needs first of all a lot of input a lot of data input because you know you need the expertise and it comes from different angles dermatologists cosmetologists and uh, what we love um, environmental data so to see you know air pollution and correlations of water hardness or other factors how does it influence at all there's not that many studies on it and then it kind of goes back into this like I always say, vertically integrated value chain, right? So um, you kind of have the analysis, then you have the manufacturing of the product, and you have very fast iteration cycles of the product. So um, the customer gets a fresh product, not something that waited three years on a shelf. He tries the product he likes or doesn't like, or likes some parts of it, he'll feedback you, and you're going to manufacture a new product, taking into this... Um, feedback and this kind of points the customer made. So this is kind of what, what really fascinates me because um, it democratizes knowledge, uh, knowledge that you know used to be very kind of silo um, available to very few and it gives this knowledge in form of better products to the people. Um, this is number one. Um, number two, I think um, it's super interesting um, when you look at platforms and you know kind of how how everybody has the same products offerings, um, you know the real differentiator is brand, and it should be product, but it isn't. So you know 95% of products get produced by the same producers, and kind of you know um, engineered by the same R&D lab, and um, most people don't even know that uh, lots of brands um, in the cosmetic sectors are actually similar or even from the same R&D lab and I just add something here or there that doesn't really have a function but to make the formula different and then you know they get it again and so I think the real lock-in effect is going to be created by personalized products that truly change your connection to the customer um, and that's what we're working on. Gotcha. Gotcha. I mean, how different are products like that, like um, across the spectrum of diversity? If you have a um, a person, a dark-skinned person living in a city with hard water versus a light-skinned person living in a rural mountainous area with soft water or something, like, do you identify baseline characteristics of each? And then, if someone were to get a skincare product, would they be vastly chemically different or so the the question is first of all there's not much research on this so um, kind of diversity in probation groups is very low so you kind of um, I mean already probation groups if you test products um, with people the groups are very small so you would think a study would be done on I don't know thousands of people to kind of equal out statistics <laughs> but actually it's like 30 or 50 or maybe 100. So already this entity is very low and then diversity within this group is super low. So I think um, technologically what we wanted to do is to see these correlations and to see 
um, because it's hard to say right now. I mean, you do see differences, but we're only selling for one year products. So you kind of, you know, when your your usage is growing and when you have more different people using products, you will see if it really makes a difference or not. So you already see differences, but you will see in the feedback and the treatments how it really comes back to something very different or if, you know, it's more kind of, yeah, it makes a little difference, but um, it's not a huge big deal. So I think um, this is what you will learn after, you know, more cohorts using the products. So essentially you're kind of taking a, a customer discovery, like lean startup kind of approach. To, time, yeah. <laughs> so the idea is you provide the customer a product, they use it for a time, they give you feedback and then you adapt the product to that feedback yeah or not I mean we see the funny thing was at the beginning we thought we have to do a lot of adaption and um, I mean technologically you can do uh, like an endless variety of products right but then when you translate it to real products you have regulations you have testings so you know there's still this gap that needs to be kind of figured out over the next three years how do you really bring the full benefit of uh, technologically possible personalization and translate it into products right so so um, we were thinking there would be a lot of adaption necessary and then actually what came out was uh, at the first go, because so we took about one year to develop the products and the technology, and like about 18 months until it was a neural net self-learning process, right? So um, it was, um, we sent out the products and 94.7% would recommend us to friends and family. So we actually didn't have um, so much negative feedback. Um, and um, this was super interesting to me. So we kind of, it, it gave me, let's say, a good feeling about that we learned the right factors and that we did the correlation and the R&D great. So, um, yeah. So, um, you know, I think anybody that hears that word um, nowadays, at least that's into technology, is, is thinking about how AI could be transforming yet another industry. How are you using artificial intelligence? Are you compiling the data from the feedback of the customers to continually iterate on the product? Is there I mean, so, so there's different approaches that we started to do. So um, one is to bring, um, or maybe first start off by saying we've been nominated for the technology we built for the German AI award as a top three startup. So um, yeah, I was, I was super proud and super nervous <laughs> um, kind of giving the pitch on that. Um, it, was, it was last Thursday. So um, we, we kind of tried two different approaches. One is um, to bring a structural, um, very uh, good base on the ingredient side of things. So um, also this is why we, uh, I'll show you later, we have a laboratory, our own laboratory in our office. We have a few chemists working there. So 
um, we wanted to start off by really granularly putting data into um, the algorithm of um, ingredients and we soon noticed that actually most formulas out there are more or less the same and um, you know if you have like uh, let's say um, one ingredient um, so like shea butter or anything jojoba oil whatever it is it can vary greatly from um, one producer to the other so um, kind of that's where it starts to get interesting so you have already a very broad ingredient base which is you know um, super different from where you source the product so you need to kind of analyze this and put it in a structural base, which requires you to have very granular data on it because you need to know exactly what's used and you can't read this out by, for example, um, crawling product formulations on the internet or so. You don't know exactly what's the percentage of them. That was number one. So that's assessing the supply chain, but not only yeah. the producer, but it's almost on a batch by batch basis. Right? Yeah, and it's on a chemical basis as well. So you will have different um, interactions, you will have certain constraints that go for one chemical, don't go for the other. Um, you actually see different, let's say, um, uh, different substances um, when they come from different sources. So you do have a different ground then for the algorithm. So that's why it's super important to know your source and to have the data sheet. So, um, and this is, you know, some, um, some ingredient producers started to do this. Um, there are some, you know, um, bases for their own ingredient where they started to do this, but there's no interaction and it's still a lot of a manual process to look up these ingredients and connect. So this was number one and this was why we started our own products because we needed to have the very granular detail of products. So when someone says personalization to me, um, the first thing I think about is, well, I think everything, everyone's trying to move in that direction, personalized medicine, personalized health, yeah. personalized nutrition. Um, but when I think of personalization, the first thing that comes to my mind is, well, there's going to be a problem with economies of scale, yeah. right? How do you, how do you personalize these products and still stay competitive in the marketplace? Do you have to be at a significantly higher price point and leverage that personalization as a differentiator? Or can you, I mean, you're also playing in a space with a lot of luxury brands where people are paying a premium just for the brand. Yeah. And it's, it's crazy to see, like, I mean, to, to see how the beauty space works is pretty crazy. And I mean, um, coming back, like, to, to what happens then, um, the outcome is you get more transparent and probably um, better, more resourceable, more um, environmental friendly, sustainable products, right? Because you kind of, you source right and you translate it into um, the right product for the customer, which, you know, equals less waste um, it equals um, more uh, the, the usage of kind of the latest sustainability thoughts on materials and everything. Um, and I think um, if, you, if you kind of think this through, this is already saving you a lot of money. So uh, number one, you're not overproducing, um, you're not ordering more than you need, your networking capital is kind of you know, in, in, in a good place because you're just in time producing. So there's a lot of advantages on this. Um, however, um, you, you are right when it comes to personalization. I don't think we have to look at the 
number of let's say millions of combinations i mean that's super easy to do like millions of combinations already if you take one ingredient like hyaluronic acid and you, you can put it from 0.01 to you know whatever five percent you already have a, a variant in it that makes it an endlessly uh, endlessly uh, um, personalized but I think this shouldn't be what it's about you know the discussion should be about what's really the best for you what is what is the perfect match for you and this is not only for skincare it's for anything um, you know as you've mentioned I think uh, medicine is already much further than um, you know consumer goods and um, you have to ask yourself the questions why do people not want to produce personalized because it is definitely more, uh, you know, uh, environmentally friendly and so on. There's lots of advantages because of the costs. They don't want to bear this extra cost of making it fit for you. It's much easier to put you um, one product into the shelf and sell it for everybody out there than to produce, let's say, even 20 products and put it into the shelf and sell it. Um, you know, because every variety will increase your costs. Right, right. So. Well, you... you uh you found a really interesting and unique value proposition. You brought in technology and, and personalization. Um, talking to me, talking to the people listening to this podcast, they can wrap their heads around those terms very well, I think, um, because we think in these terms as entrepreneurs. But how do you communicate that differentiator to the market out there that, you know, can't process what AI is or, you know, don't really think about personalization in that regard. I think they also don't care, you know, like they don't care if you use AI or whatever it is, they just want a, the best product for them and they want it at a reasonable price. So, so they don't care about your way there, they just care for results. They want to be, you know, looking better, have something that eases the problem they have or they just want to have a great lifestyle product. So I think, um, in terms of data, um, what we are seeing is certain cohorts that, you know, over time show that people choose certain things over others. So you see, you know, a pattern of um, like uh, um, skin goals that people have, um, issues that people have, sensitivities that people have, and you see certain combinations. So I think, you know, um, we, we are definitely looking into translating this better for the group that we see and kind of make personalization something tangible, tangible, Ten is that the word? Tangible, so that people really translate it for them into what is my benefit, right? Um, and we are, we are on that way, yeah. <laughs> so what's the, what do you see as someone that's been in this space for a while now, what do you see as the kind of the, the future, the disruption of the skincare industry and where does Ebenezer fit in? What's your, what's your vision? I think, you know, um, looking back at the time when um, where skincare started, you know, it started in a pharmacy. It started um, with people telling, um, how's the guy called? Pharmacist? Mm -hmm. <laughs> it started with people telling the pharmacist, um, this is my issue, can you please do something against it? Or this is my wish, can you please? And um, then, you know, when it kind of got industrialized, it started to go into the masses only. And I think we are at a point in time where technology allows us to cut the costs and to kind of democratize all this knowledge by using different data sources and put it together into a better product that's also 
you know, kind of more reasonably priced. And the cost will keep going down like everything in technology does. So I do think um, that, you know, we're going to see a return on a more um, aware consumer. Consume? Uh, can you? A, a more aware consumer um, that kind of looks at factors, um, you know, like environment, that um, clean ingredients. Um, we're going to see, um, I think, um, kind of by using these platforms that, you know, people are, by seeing more transparent these, these products that are, you know, overwhelming, um, that they're going to go back to something that is more suitable for them, more um, reasonable in the claims for them. And it's kind of going to cut through the marketing um, talk and translate it to something that appeals to them. And this will create a lock-up, lock-in effect that, you know, allows for this product to keep on thriving. And you've seen it, um, I think, um, where, where has it already started? Um, I think you're seeing it a little bit in the nutrition uh, sector where, you know, people are kind of willing to spend more money on better quality products, on cleaner products. Um, you, um, you can see it um, in fashion. I think it's just starting in fashion. People are looking behind the scenes and, you know, um, this is also some, some great ventures uh, like Vestiaire or others picking up on this uh, and uh, I think, uh, yeah, we're going to see it in cosmetics starting soon. And personalization is just giving it a form. It's not, you know, it's not about being the most hyper-personalized. I don't think, I'm not sure yet that hyper-personalization is the way um, that will come out. Um, it has to be a fit for you. And I don't think you care if there's a million others out there or if it's, you know, um, like just, let's say, hundred thousands of combinations. You don't care. You want the right product, right? I love the aesthetic that you guys have created. It's, it's clean, okay. it's elegant. Um, Avenida. Um, I hear a Genesis story in there. <laughs> Why yeah. did you, uh, how did you come up with? Um, so we wanted to create um, a, a gender neutral brand. Um, something, you know, like men are always marketed to in like dark blue colors or orange or I don't know, like, you know, man colors. And females are also always marketed to in like this kind of pastel colors. And, and we wanted to create something that both could use and kind of not feel that it's about, you know, if you're a man or a, a female or whatever. Uh, we, 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 we wanted to create this. So we kind of did a plot twist in the Eve and Edom and it's Adam and Eve and we swapped the first two letters. And it kind of is, first of all, this, because it gives this non-gender kind of, um, you know, connotation to the name and to the brand. But it's also like starting from scratch, right? So starting um, Beauty 2.0, where you actually use technology and, you know, you actually use the knowledge of, 
you know, like the experts and kind of synthesizing it and giving it and democratizing it for people into products. So that was the idea behind the name. But no one can remember it apart from like even uh, speaking it out well. So uh, we, we, we got to see how we, it's always hard. Ave and Edom, Edom and Ave, we hear a lot of things about it, right? Yeah. I think it, it's a nice, it has a nice ring to it. Um, I want to ask you just kind of one more maybe bigger picture question. Um, and I, I ask a lot of people on the podcast this because, you know, one of the reasons we're doing this is to inspire the next generation of future founders out there, either from Vehu or, or anywhere else. Um, if you had if you had the opportunity, which you do, to share, you know, kind of a few key points of wisdom to the next generation of founders, whether they are for female founders or, or just founders in general, based on your kind of experience and your lessons learned, is there, uh, can you share some words of wisdom having been through such a unique journey yourself? So, okay, I think, you know, wisdom is a big word. I would say the, the recipient has to judge that. Um, maybe I can speak for, for learnings for myself. Um, you know, I've, I've been very open now in this podcast, so I think, I hope some already came through, but um, one, one major learning would be don't wait too long. Um, you know, really don't try to make it perfect. There is no perfect, doesn't exist. There is no right timing. Just go for it and kind of really, you know, push um, against the odds to, to make it happen. And, uh, and don't be too judgmental on yourself. Like, try to let go of that perfectionist in you and kind of, um, you know, see the good things rather, rather than the, the, the things that could, you know, not work. <clears throat> and uh, remind yourself of that daily. <laughs> um, then I think, you know, um, don't let society kind of bully you into this um, theme of you have to have a kid, the career, the perfect, you know, everything. Like one is the perfectionist inside yourself that you need to kind of let go. And the other thing is don't let anyone put their theme on you. Like um, there is no perfectionist theme. No one says that you have to live you know, married, unmarried, with kid, without kids, careers, no careers, it doesn't matter. Like, in the end, you know, set your own KPI for happiness and mm. um, don't let society give you these KPIs for your happiness. Set your own KPI for happiness. Yeah. That'll be on your Wikipedia page one day. It's <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> your go-to quote. Uh, I, I love that. That's, uh, um, that's really profound. And I think not, not enough of us do that and I think it's an interesting challenge for entrepreneurs in general because in many ways we are um, hardworking, motivated, kind of have a plan, have a vision and are trying to execute on that vision and the whole world around us is kind of in teaching us to be an entrepreneur it's like have a vision and execute on that vision but I think anyone that's done it a few times realizes that you know, you can never fully execute on that vision. And, yeah. you know, I think um, that's why we're seeing so many entrepreneurs getting into stoic philosophy and, you know, getting into, um, I, I can't count how many times people have quoted Giuseppe Pareto and, you know, the 80-20 and like, you know, no, nothing is, is ever perfect in business or in life, right? 
Yeah, I mean, it sounds so hollow when you kind of, you know, like I'm always laughing because, um, you know, I, I try to give advice to my six-year-old on, you know, be more brave than mommy, do this and more, and do this more, do this less, like, you know how it is, right, with kids. And, and, and when I did this pitch at the, at the um, Artificial Intelligence Awards, I was so excited, I forgot to kind of um, one to, to say half of my pitch and, uh, and she was watching, I, I let her stay up and you know she was afterwards she was like um, I was calling her and I said you know did you learn anything from tonight she's like yeah I learned that you didn't win I'm like <laughs> thanks honey um, that's you know an awesome learning and I was like did you learn anything else and she was like yeah you, you were so scared and, and you did it anyways and I was like yeah And I think, you know, like, this is important. Like, you can be scared. You can, you know, lose your faith. You can kind of, um, you know, be hard on yourself. But there's always, like, someone's watching. And can be your daughter, can be your friends. But, like, kind of make sure that they see that it's not always perfect. And, like, you can, you know, bang uh, perfection quotes at their heads all the time. But, you know, try try to be open about this. And I think for me at least try to share because I think it's a normal thing to be afraid, it's a normal thing to be, you know, scared. And I shared that actually on stage. I said, I'm so nervous. And you know, half of the people were like, oh my God, she's so girly. She's nervous, she's at an AI pitch, like, do we care? No, a robot is gonna do her job. And the others actually came up to me after the event, they're like, it was incredibly brave that you said it, right? So speak up, um, share, share your fears, share um, the non-perfection and, uh, you know, uh, share your failures. And it's easy to speak about success and how you made it, but when you're not there yet, it's hard. And share these moments. I think it's kind of giving more to others than the perfection story at the end, right? So much wisdom in there. You know, authenticity, vulnerability, um, But I love it that one of the most <laughs> profound messages came from a six-year-old. Mommy, you were scared, but you did it anyway. Scott, that can be translated into just so much. So good, good parenting lesson you gave there. That was wonderful. <laughs> um, I wrap up all the podcasts getting a little bit of insight into the person and not just the career of the person across from me. So, Francisca, I've got a couple, couple fun questions. Maybe you can share a couple insights into. First of all, um, is there a book on your bedside table? Is there something that you are reading? I've always, and the reason I'm asking is, every time I've visited someone's home, kind of the first place I look is their bookshelf. I feel like you can learn so much from what is on a person's bookshelf. Can you share something that you are reading or have read recently? So if you come to my house, I have um, a very weird ritual. So I read a lot and I really love reading. I mean, a lot less since, you know, the kid, but I still love it. And whenever someone comes to my house the first time, I'll, I'll let them choose a book and take it. So many people out there who have an old book of mine. <laughs> No, please bring these books back. No, but um, uh, so um, I'm, I'm really ashamed to say what I'm reading actually right now. Um, I'm reading um, Funnel Traffic, I think it's called, and it's about how you kind of build your funnels um, 
to increase um, uh, traffic and conversion. Um, someone recommended it to me. It's kind of this one of these books that probably get sold on home shopping <laughs> or something. It's like um, it's like a really um, pushy book on on sales. <laughs> But um, I, I love to read them from time to time, so I'm, I'm sorry I have to, to crush your um, philosophic picture of me. I'm, I'm reading. Uh. That's so funny. I, I, I love it. I love it because uh, of all the answers I've heard, they've either been like deeply philosophical. <laughs> they've been a lot of science fiction. Um, definitely a few that are like, I only read children's books because I have four children at home or whatnot. So. Uh, that's a really good recommendation. Traffic secrets. It's, I think traffic secrets or funnel logic or something. I can look it up. It's from Brunson. Awesome. It's yeah, very salesy. I will check that out actually because um, I'm a big believer that um, there's two roles for start founders. You either build stuff or you sell stuff. Yep. And if you don't know how to build stuff, you better be really damn good at selling yeah. stuff, right? <laughs> so that sounds like a great reference. One other question. Um, and I feel like I've repeated this line so many times because I've done so many interviews in Berlin that you are in arguably German, Germany's music capital. Um, what's on your playlist? What, what's cycling on your, your playlist these days? Um, so, so there's two things. One is probably the, the, the part where I just relax, which is just like, you know, uh, it's really just music. Um, and it's really embarrassing I'm like into pop and the charts so super boring things but I think sometimes normality takes your mind off you know deep thinking and you need a break so you just listen to some something um, hip-hop R&B <laughs> okay all the profound stuff and the other thing is uh, I really like to hear podcasts so when I drive um, from work to work wherever I drive I always use the time in my car to hear some um, some podcasts. The last one I, I heard was the Pandemic Files um, with uh, Dan Ram and uh, Jules Spark. And, um, you know, I, I was on their podcast, so I wanted to listen to the other founders and, uh, yeah, really liked it, um, how people handle Corona in a very different way. So kind of cool to see that, you know, um, again, um, so much wisdom on that because in crisis, you know, reality shows. <laughs> so, um, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, there's, I bet there's going to be a lot of interesting episodes around that topic coming up. I haven't gone through all, but you know, this is this is something I like, and and uh, and Alexander Husing is doing also a great podcast. I forgot the name, but I also listen to that a lot. Awesome, awesome. Well, Francisco Lehart, I thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. Um, I'm glad we finally got a chance to do it, and maybe in a few years when Avenidum uh, grows even more, we can do a follow-up, but um, it was a pleasure. Always great to have another Vehu alum uh, across the table. And uh, yeah, we'll do it again, thanks. Thank you. Well, folks, that was Francisca Leonhardt, founder of AI-driven personalized skincare company, Ave and Edom. To learn more about Francisca's work, go to aveandedom.com. Next up, we'll be introducing Mirela Volva, Vehau alum and founder of pet health testing and monitoring company, Vitivo. We'll be discussing her journey from farm life in Mayan to Vehau and Fallender to an ever-evolving life as a founder in Berlin. Until then, be sure to check out our website at mostawesomepodcast.com, follow our channel on YouTube, 
and subscribe on Spotify, Apple, or your favorite podcast streaming service. Bis nächstes Mal.